Welcome to the reading room. This is Room 19. On this programme, the Reading Room Book Group take a look at stand-up comedian Stuart Lee's new book, the If You Prefer a Milder Comedian, Please Ask for One EP. The problem is I hate Tom Kitt. <laughs> and I hate anyone that likes it. <laughs> right, and I'm now, I'm going to explain why that is for about 45 minutes. We talked to best-selling action thriller writer Matthew Riley. I got hate mail for that. I had people write me emails so they'd never read my books again. There's poetry from Andrew Golding and more nominations for our 101 books to read before you die. This is Brandon Cleary. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Joining us, as always, is Jill Hart. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Paul. This month on The Reading Room Book Group, we're going to be reviewing Stuart Lee, the If You Prefer a Milder Comedian, Please Ask for One EP. This uh, this book is following his previous book, uh, which was How I Escaped My Certain Fate, The Lives and Deaths of a Stand-Up Comedian, uh, a book which really tore apart uh, three of his previous stand-up shows. And, and this, as an EP, is like, and he describes it as, as, as the olden days where you would have a double vinyl album. This is like just a 10-inch vinyl supplement to it now uh, if you don't know what an ep is then then i don't know perhaps ask your parents uh, <laughs> or, or your cousins or your cool cousin who knows about vinyl music um okay jill what did you think well i'm not your natural market for this so my idea of comedy was four candles and del boy falling down the bar so i don't know the people concerned i don't know the characters concerned I thought it was an interesting concept to deconstruct a show. But I have to say it's the longest hundred pages I've read in a long time. I felt I was reading a DIY manual for how to build a, a wardrobe. And I don't think I want to build any more wardrobes or do any more DIY for a bit, I have to say. OK, so I mean, right, we've established early mm. on that, it, that it's, it's not for you. And it, it, I think Stuart Lee himself would say, right, OK, if it's not for you, it's not for you because hmm. he puts on his publicity. And I'm not calling you a sun reader, Jill, but he puts on his publicity uh, that what the sun think of him. Uh, the worst comedian in Britain, as funny as the bubonic plague. And I think he wears that as kind of a, a badge of honour, but also he keeps it to keep people out, people who aren't going to maybe get this this comedy. He's the comedian's comedian, uh, I, I think he's described as. And uh, and this kind of thing really deconstructs, like you say, the, the, the whole performance aspect, the uh, the writing aspect and where each joke comes from. And uh, that for me, well, I went to see the show when he brought it to Lincoln and I thought it was, it was very exciting, not always funny. And sometimes the word comedian doesn't always fit. Uh, but actually is making you think and making you think, well, do I agree with that? You know, because generally I would think I agree with, uh, with, with, with Stuart Lee's politics and where he comes from, uh, you know, sort of politically minded. But then every now and then he'll throw something in, like the Richard Hammond skit in here where he says he wishes his, you know, he, he wishes he'd been killed in that accident. Now, that's Stuart Lee, the character talking and it was very challenging it was very challenging to be in that room at the time because most people in there are top gear fans because top gear is a huge program and so i think he finds the enjoyment for Stuart lee going on that stage and putting a challenging opinion over to that audience but also coming from a character as well because this is where you you must differentiate between the character Stuart lee and also actually the person Stuart Lee. Now you were saying something to me earlier about how can he say this about me? About you know, I as I say, I don't find this sort of thing funny or pleasant. The humour against another person doesn't particularly do anything for me. He claims that himself within the text at places that this is what he's doing, but he is getting his 
livelihood out of saying unpleasant things about people. I just find it difficult to understand where good manners, libel and slander stop and comedy begins and where the line is what makes one not all right and the other side of the line where it is all right. Well, let's listen to a clip of, mm. uh, of Stuart Lee himself. I went and looked at the pub in the village in the countryside and I realised I could never live in the countryside because the pub in the village in the countryside was full exclusively of middle-aged men dressed from head to toe in supermarket denim who all looked and sounded exactly like Jeremy Clarkson. (laughs) I realised I could never live in the countryside because living in the countryside would be like living in an endless edition of Top Gear. (laughs) And I hate Top Gear. One bloke cheering there, did you hear that? There's one bloke cheering. Yeah, there's one person clapping. There's a little pocket, isn't there, spread across here and here and here of, like, the liberal Top Gear haters. <laughs> On the whole, here tonight in Glasgow, probably a majority of the audience are going, well, we like Top Gear, it's funny, what's your... Why? The problem is I hate Top Gear. And I hate anyone that likes it. Right, and I'm now, I'm going to explain why that is for about 45 minutes. Now, you see there, you were looking at me and you were saying, why are they laughing? Why are people laughing at that? I don't get it. But I understand, obviously, a lot of people do. Yeah, well, I think actually what he's done there, mm. just by playing that clip, I think probably demonstrates certainly better than I was putting it across, the awkwardness. Because when I was in that room, I was, you know, I, I saw mm. the show and the majority of people watch Top Gear because most people do. And, you know, those of us who watch TV, Jill. And, um... <laughs> It was it was very much a case of, oh, oh right, where's this going? Where's this going? And then he says, now I'm going to talk about that for about 45 minutes. You think, right, mm. this is going to be challenging. This is interesting. I mean, obviously, his sense of timing is obviously very good. And when you're doing a live show like that, obviously, that is how it's structured. I did feel that not having engaged with that side of it, trying to read it as a straight text with voluminous footnotes mm. was... It was, I say, it was a very long hundred pages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's something I was, I was very interested to find out from you is how because we were reading this, this as, a as a book. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen the man, heard the man, and it was, it wasn't an easy read. I didn't think. No, but then in, in because most cases, you're missing well, it the timing. Be, because yeah. you're missing the timing that actually makes for tension and a performance and a show, which you you don't get when you're reading it. Whereas. What you actually get is the things that just irritate, like the years every few seconds and things like this. And you think, but he's not writing this as a book. He's, he's, he's you know, it is a... a it's text. been transcribed, it, Yes, it's a transcript. It, yeah. So I don't think I'm in, in the right position. I think it's got to be only really for people who've seen it and seen him and understand the timing that goes with it i would have thought now at this time we would normally bring in kathy our regular email reviewer but we've uh, we've gallantly given her the month off this time so uh, we're going to bring in our producer johnny hoare uh, johnny what did you think of this book I, I think it's come up with a really interesting way of approaching comedy you know I've, I've read a lot of comedy books in my time and most of them concentrate on comedians you know the person who they are how they grew up and all that kind of stuff to actually have a whole book just about the material and where it comes from and analyzing it, i think it's a, a really interesting approach um, okay, but on that, are you going to take Jill's point that you would perhaps need to see the medium? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, as I say, I, I'm a fan of Stuart Lee. You have to know who he is. Ideally, you have to have seen this particular show. I think the book kind of works almost like a DVD extra, you know. Yeah. That's that's really what it's meant as. If you've not seen the show, I mean, the, the transcript is very, very accurate, all the ums and ahs and half-finished sentences. Just reading that dryly on the page, you probably 
won't understand what it's on about half the time without the intonation and without his his, his delivery of it. But I would like to pick up on what Jill said about him being kind of cruel. I mean, I, th- I, I disagree entirely. I think his his comedy comes from a very good place, ultimately. And if, if you don't know Top Gear and you don't know who Jeremy Clarkson and Richard Hammond and these people are, then you probably think, why has he been so horrible to them? But the point is, he's using the, the style of comedy they use um, against them. So they, they make incredibly cruel jokes. I mean, he mentions in the book about the, the comments that Jeremy Clarkson made about Gordon Brown being a one-eyed Scottish idiot. Um, and he thinks it's fine to say that. And millions of people agree and they laugh along with it. So then Stuart Lee turns that around and says something awful about Richard Hammond or Richard Hammond's children or Jeremy Clarkson's children, and suddenly people are gasping. And that's interesting, I think. Why, why is that? Why do we accept this kind of bullish, horrible, aggressive humour from, from Jeremy Clarkson and from Top Gear because it's popular, because it gets 8 million viewers? But when a, a comedian, a sort of low-status comedian, getting only a million viewers late at night says it, it's suddenly offensive and it's all over the, the Daily Express. Yeah, I see your point. I mean, do, you mm. want, you, do you accept that, Jill? Or? From somebody else who is working in the same area, I do a bit. But as I said earlier to you, Paul, there's several points where he says that his mum has found discomfort with his material and that she'd wished he'd not used his parents' divorce. I expect that was rather an understatement. I don't know. But, I mean, he's obviously got a parents he's close to. He's obviously got little children and he is using comedy against them. And I, I can't see any world where that's all right. But that, again, is just me and my... Lack of understanding of comedy, perhaps. And also at the end in the appendix, after having a good old pop at everybody else through the other 90-odd pages, he, he's quite aggrieved that people are having a pop at him. And I thought, actually, I think that's a bit... That's true. I think I read that article when it first came out. And we talk about an, uh, at the end of the book, there's an appendix yeah. uh, that first appeared on the on the website Chortle, uh, where I, I think... I probably sit in the middle. <laughs> How surprise, surprise! If Paul's sitting on the fence here, uh, but I sit on the fence here just because I think what he's trying to do there is put some truth into what a newspaper said. You know, an, an item that uh, appeared about him. Uh, mm. I mean, I, I think he might have been better off not writing that article, not rising to it. But it must be very difficult if untruths are being written about you. But you shouldn't hand it out if you can't take it back. Yeah, yeah. But uh, your your point here, <laughs> I'm Johnny. Sure you sell, I think tell he, your small children. Yeah. Yeah, but I think he's he's handing it out in the context of a theatrical performance where hopefully everyone in the room understands that this is a performance and what he's saying isn't necessarily what he believes. Mm. Whereas when a, a columnist writes in a newspaper, I think we're meant to think that they really believe that stuff and we're meant to agree with them too. But so, so Johnny, do you think in this case he he should always be called a comedian? Do you think? I mean, I, I, there were people laughing there. I, I think it's very funny. But I, do you think it'd be braver if he came out? I don't know, as a lecturer or something like that, something to to put these points home, and and not necessarily call yourself a comedian because I know in in my heart of hearts uh, I go I, I, I think with Jill uh, alongside the four candle sketch and things like that so you know don't be disillusioned Jill about your no, your idea no. of comedy it's you know it's different to other people there isn't was it? a part about halfway in here where he he was regarding him he said he regarded himself more as a clown as in the concept of a clown as a struggle of man to maintain his dignity I think it said so, and clowns are sad humor angry humor that sort of thing more of a, a turn rather than a modern comedian yeah well he did write a, a book a few years ago called um, the perfect fool where he talked about native american indian clowns and apparently among some tribes they have this kind of day where they allow the clowns just to go mad they have clowns in their um, communes who spend the whole year just watching the community seeing where the pressures are where the kind of aggro is in the community and then on that one day they're allowed to go mad all the rules are suspended they can assault people they can rip people's clothes off they can do whatever they want so i think that's yeah (laughs) so i think that's probably where he's coming from it you know when you're on that stage as a comedian 
then you can say stuff that in any other context wouldn't be right. So long as there's a, a purpose behind it, as long as there's a, a, a good reason behind it. So, I mean, in, in the same sense, Johnny, I mean, are you, a, are you a Frankie Boyle fan? Do you go, would you go that far? Because for me, he's, he's very extreme. But Yeah, I, I feel what he does is a little more cynical, I think. I think it's, it's deliberately trying to wind people up. Whereas I think with Stuart Lee, there, there's more of a, it sounds a bit poncy, but there's more of intellect behind it. There's more of a, um, he's trying to achieve something. Whereas Frankie Boyle, I think, is trying to make people go, ooh, you know, and trying to make people shocked. I don't think that's what Stuart Lee's doing at all. And I think we're all in, in agreement that you wouldn't buy this book, perhaps, unless you were, you, you'd seen the show. And like you say, Johnny, it's about uh, a DVD extra. And in that sense, Jill, are you surprised that this actually gets published? I mean, is, is, there, is that a surprise as a publisher, thinking this is good, that's quite a narrow market? I think it's quite interesting that I think what's what is quite good about it as well is it is the deconstruction of a process. I think that is interesting. Same as if you read a literary biography and if the biography is just about the person and what they do, that isn't a literary biography. A literary biography is one that explains how the work comes out of the life and that this explains how his work comes out of his life. So I think it's a good, interesting piece of writing if it is for your particular craft. It's an approach I'd like to see other comedians use. You know, it'd be fascinating to read Daniel Kitson or, or Reeves and Mortimer do a book like this where they deconstruct their, their comedy and where it comes from. And why shouldn't they? You know, every other art form gets deconstructed to the nth degree. Mm. For some reason, comedy doesn't. People just accept that, that they, they'll read books about a comedian, they'll read a book about his you know, upbringing, whatever, and think that tells them about the comedy. But the material and the comedian aren't the same thing. You know, they create this stuff in the same way that an author writes a book and why shouldn't it be deconstructed and, and analysed in the same way? Yeah, I think I think the, the parts of the deconstruction I really enjoyed here and this is something that uh, hopefully over the next few months on the reading room we'll, uh, we'll examine a little bit more because I'm trying to do uh, open mic nights for poetry and things like that at the moment and uh, working the room and the way he works a room and the way he says something, pauses and phrases and uses those performance, so it's the performance aspect, I really got something from this uh, and my challenge now is to not copy that <laughs> uh, but now to you know to sort of take that on board and go and do something myself with it uh, now Stuart Lee uh, the if you prefer a milder comedian please ask for one EP published by Faber Books what are we going to say Johnny I know your answer it's got to be a yes from me okay Jill I think it's a good thing of its kind but it wouldn't be for me and I probably wouldn't recommend it to anybody for whom it wasn't their thing either okay That's I offence <laughs> offence talking offences no, I'm not going to sit on the fence. I'm going to, I'm going to say, yes, I do recommend this. Uh, but, you know, again, I think the author would only want you to read it if, uh, if you are wanting to understand it. So if you are a Stuart Lee fan, he's coming to Lincoln. He's coming to the LPAC on Saturday, the 17th of March, with his new show, Carpet Remnant World. Uh, and a new book will also be out in the summer called TV Comedian, which I'm sure will analyse comedy to a further depth. And uh, next month here on The Reading Room, a book group will be reading Pantheon, uh, published by HarperCollins, and that is by Sam Bourne. Hi, I'm Richard Herring. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham. Hi, this is Mark Kermo. This is Tony Hawkes. This is Karen Maitland. This is Brandon Cleary. And you're listening to The Reading Room. The Reading Room. The Reading Room. On Siren 107.3 FM. Last year, I went along to interview John Hegley at the Wald's Words Festival, and you'll find that on our Room 16 podcast. But while I was there, I was introduced to a fantastic young poet called Andrew Golding. Here's Andrew with a poem I'm sure we can all relate to. The Friendship Come Down. The friendship come down is the feeling right after the friendship high. One comes with the friends I love, the other when they say goodbye. I can feel the friendship come down dangling in my chest today, tethered to the fragile heart that breaks each time they walk away. 
heavy with the gloomy prospect of the lonely weekday grind, buoyed up only by their voices and their faces in my mind. Is it wrong there's only two things that my life's joy hangs upon? Just the presence of these people and some stools to sit them on. Being with these special friends is all that keeps the beast at bay. If it's lurking in the wings then I am blind to all but they. Only as the evening wears on, like the wearing off of drugs, can I sense the come down waiting in the midst of farewell hugs. If you love with every heartstring, then you'll know the come down well, but you'll also know the feeling when a heart begins to swell, and you'll know a hug is better if you let time intervene, for the days you've missed that person, for the bad times in between. If I could be in the company of my friends forevermore, I would miss the unmatched glory of when they walk through the door. All those rapid stolen hours are much finer for the wait. Friendship, like the best red wine, should not be guzzled by the crate. So the come down is the signal that you love without restraint. Knowing this, my future come downs will be met without complaint. I'll await the next encounter with the ones who fill my heart, hoping that in their own come downs I might play a minor part. And I'll tell myself each time a treasured night beside them ends. Had we not the friendship come down, chances are we'd have not friends. Hi, I'm Richard Herring and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Australian action thriller writer Matthew Riley is the international best-selling author of nine novels, including the Jack West Jr. series and the Scarecrow series. Famed for their frantic pace and plot twists, his books have been translated into 20 languages and have sold over 1 million copies in the UK alone. The latest book in the Scarecrow series, Scarecrow and the Army of Thieves, was published at the end of last year and our colleague John Fernandez recently spoke to Matthew down the line from his home in Sydney. I should warn you that this interview contains spoilers, including revelations about the deaths of characters in past Scarecrow books. So if you're not fully up to date with Matthew's work and you'd like to avoid those, you might want to skip the next five minutes. What made you decide to write another Scarecrow book? Well, I'd, I'd done a, the Jack West series, which satisfied my need to write about sort of the weird ancient places around the world. But I'd always had fans asking me, you know, we're we going to see Scarecrow again. And I quite liked him, but... I wanted to wait for the world to catch up with Scarecrow, and uh, it finally did. I, I actually read an interview with you that said the world changed around 2009, 2010, and uh, that, that's what made you want to write, write this book. Could you say what did change in the world then? It's the rise of China and the decline of the United States. I think this is something which is on all of our minds, and um, that is threaded into the new book. How do you feel that this book stands up against Ice Station, Area 7 and Scarecrow? It's, uh, it's better and it's faster. I wanted to write a book which was utterly relentless. And the responses I've been getting in Australia where the book's done extremely well are that fans have had to sort of take the phone off the hook, tell family members to leave them alone and keep up with the book. Relentlessness is what I was after. The other Scarecrow books were pretty fast. This one's a whole new level. The other Scarecrow scarecrow books were fast. I mean, I'm worried about how the time that I'm going to have to put aside. I don't think my girlfriend's going to forgive me. There are no breaks. It's like the roller coaster. It takes you up the hill and then you're off. I know this is a question you must be asked a lot, but how could you kill Gant in Scarecrow? I mean, it was a gruesome way for her to go. And what was going through your head when you did that? These books are thrillers. They're designed to take you to the edge of your seat and to be a thriller it means that no character can be safe and so what I did in Scarecrow and not only did I kill off this it was a much loved character but I killed her off in a very horrible horrible way ever since then I have had fans come to signings and say 
after what you did in Scarecrow, I thought no character was safe. And now people are reading Army of Thieves and certainly through the Jack West series. What I did in Scarecrow, killing off that character, reverberated for, for years afterwards. I got hate mail. For that i had people write me emails and say they'd never read my books again one one death which actually um stuck with me since ice station was book i mean did you plan to kill book at the yes. start of that book yes i did uh, and again i even back then and i wrote ice station in 1997 uh, when i was 23 even then i wanted to set the tone for these thrillers i wanted a matthew riley book to be its own kind of thriller i i, I was brought up i read clancy and i read Crichton. But I wanted to have sort of the pace of Crichton, but just a ruthlessness that even Clancy didn't have. And so really with Ice Station and the character of Book, I wanted readers to like him. I wanted readers to think, oh, this guy's a really sweet guy. And then bang, the bad guys feed him to the killer whales. Suddenly you are in a Matthew Riley book. So after writing this book, do you feel that you're closer to Shane Schofield or Jack West Jr.? You know, it'll sound like a glib reply, but... I actually enjoy both of them for different reasons. And the Jack West books allow me to engage my inner Indiana Jones fetish. And and Jack is, he's a different character to Scarecrow. He's got more ancient history knowledge. And I actually went and traveled the world researching the, the Jack West Jr. books. So I went to Egypt. I went to the to China. I went to Easter Island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And I in, in the UK, I went to Stonehenge as well. So I can't do that for the Scarecrow books, which are far more geopolitical military thrillers and so when i want to get my my military fix on i write a scarecrow book and if i want to do some sort of ancient history indiana jones quest i've got jack west so they both actually give me a satisfaction in their own way well with the ancient history your your lust for ancient history was that why you wrote temple temple is an indicator of this interest i had in sort of ancient history and ancient cultures and when i wrote temple I I really wanted to do a swashbuckling story during the conquest of the Incas by the the Spaniards. But I I couldn't get away from my techno-thriller, and that's why you got the two stories in one, one in the present, one in 1535. So, yes, it it actually showed an early interest in strange ancient cultures with nice, scary temples in the jungle. (laughs) So a kind of prologue to uh, Jack West Jr.'s series, wow. Exactly. I mean, I'll admit now, Temple is my favourite book you've ever written. I loved it. And if you could ever do a dual storyline book again, make me a very happy man. But obviously it must have been... If I could, Temple was the hardest, easily the hardest of all the books to write. But if I can come up with one, I will. Wow. Well, okay. Right. Well, I'll, I'll be looking forward to it then. There's the challenge. So after this, I mean, I read an interview and you, I don't know if anything's changed, but uh, will there be another Jack West Jr. book? I'd like to map out, because uh, obviously I've counted down 765. Mm. I'd like to map out the four, the three, the two and the one and do them all, which would take probably about six years of writing to do. I'd, six so, years. Wow. That's a, that's a big portion of your life to take away. It takes me just over a year to write each of my books, which is why they come out every two years. And so I'd like to do the four, the three, the two, and the one, but I need to just sit down like for several months and just map out the stories. I did do the cliffhanger at the end of The Six Sacred Stones, and I won't do that again because I felt that the biggest fans had to wait two years for the five greatest warriors I, I will admit i was on i i was i was cursing your name at the end of that book so you you are not going to do a dual story so it's not going to be fours linked to three and twos linked to one well i'd like to have an overarching story but i think there have to be four independent missions mm. that that give the reader satisfaction because as you say 
I don't want the biggest fans to suffer the most. I think that's wrong. And doing the cliffhanger at the end of Six Sacred Stones seemed like a really good idea at the time. And, and readers have really got into the spirit of it. But I did feel that making the, the biggest fans who buy my books in the first week and read them in the first week, to have them wait two years is, is a bit tough. It was painful. It was painful. Yeah. I won't lie to you. But what do you think you'll be writing next? A Jack West Jr. or a Shane Schofield or maybe even another independent like Contest or Temple? I, I have actually written the first draft of a new book and it's a standalone. It's actually even more than that. It's set in the 1500s and it's a kick-ass murder mystery thriller. It's like Matthew Riley meets the name of the rose. I'm always trying to destroy the world and you get to a point where you go, well, hey, you know, what else can I do? And I've always had an interest in the 1500s, sort of England and Europe. I've done the first draft and I'll revise it next year. So you're hitting England for this story. Is, is Big Ben going to get destroyed? I mean, uh, can you reveal anything? <laughs> so there's going to be a new character if it's a standalone, so no more no Schofield or no Jack West. Is it a dual, um, dual story one? No, no, it's all, it all takes place in the 1500s. It's got a really swashbuckling, fantastic hero. And it even the only thing I'll say is that it even includes some real people who existed at the time. Well, that right. I will be looking forward to that. I won't delve any deeper because I know you can't give anything away, but uh, let's just say I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to move on to the Jack West Jr. series quickly. Um, yeah. You've sold the TV rights to it. Are you worried now that you've sold the um, rights that it could somebody ruin it? It's always a risk. But the guy behind it is Mark Gordon, who's a very seasoned Hollywood producer. He made Speed. Saving Private Ryan. He does the TV show Grey's Anatomy as well, so he's big. They're writing the screenplay now, and if the network really jumps onto the screenplay and loves it, this thing could be on TV by September of next year. So, I mean, I'm always looking out to see if it can reach the TV because I always feel, and I know that when I read your interviews at the end, you know, you're writing these as if they're as fast as a film, and that's why you want to see them on the TV. It'd be lovely to see it. What I do with my books, I tried from the start to make my books bigger than Hollywood movies. You know, I do blow up the aircraft carriers. I do have giant action scenes. And this means you need a producer in Hollywood who can spend $150 million. And that means there are really only about seven guys in Hollywood who could make any of my books into a film. So if Seven Wonders flies on television in the States, then I think you could see producers flock to the other books as well. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I contest would make a great standalone film. I've always thought that. I've always, I mean, I visualize it with a soundtrack in my head, which is a little bit sad. But well, hey. no, no, that's exactly what I want with contest. Contest is a, it's like a rock and roll monster movie <laughs> on speed. That's what it is. Uh, okay, so your new book. What can the UK readers expect from Scarecrow and the Army of Thieves? Well, it's it's got a whole new level of action, and the villains, the Army of Thieves, while they may sound a little Harry Potterish. They are the nastiest villains I've ever done. And in actual fact, I've been saying to audiences in Australia that I don't think this is a book for, say, a sensitive teenage reader. I write for adult, mature adult readers. And while my books have appealed to, you know, 14, 15-year-olds and up, uh, if somebody had a 13-year-old who was a bit sensitive, I would say don't get them to read Army of Thieves. This is a pretty hardcore action thriller. More head cuttings off then, I'm guessing. That doesn't even come close. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit scared now, a little bit scared. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, again, I'm always searching for not only new challenges for my hero, Scarecrow, but I'm, I'm really looking for dastardly new villains. And the, the plot of this one is very current, and the villains are, I think, the kind of villain that we in the West are really quite fearful of, and that's the anarchist. So these guys are pretty nasty. 
Matthew Riley's latest book, Scarecrow and the Army of Thieves, is available now, published by Orion, and Matthew has just announced that he'll be touring the UK to promote that planned historical novel later this year. And our thanks to John Fernandez for that interview. The Reading Rooms, 101 books to read before you die. This is Tracy Borman. I'm the author of Matilda, Queen of the Conqueror, and my chosen book is Miss Garnet's Angel by Sally Vickers, which is my favourite book of all time. It's about a retired school teacher who goes to live in Venice, and it evokes that city so beautifully, and it's the descriptions of Venice that really won my heart. It's a city that I've lived in and that I love very much, and Sally Vickers, um, I think one commentator said she writes like a haunted angel, and that is so true and and it's an incredibly funny book it's also an incredibly sad and poignant book and it just moves me every single time i read it thank you for listening to the reading room podcast we'll be back in two weeks time when we'll be talking to performance poet and latitude festival programmer luke wright and we'll have a short story from abigail tartellin see you then <laughs>